Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We're joined today, folks. This, we, I know we say this often, we have a treat, but we really do have a treat today. Uh, Matt Pacini is a real estate investor. He's a Tony Award winner, him and his wife, author of a number one best-selling book, The Backstage Guide to Real Estate. Uh, he's focused on developing passive income streams that enable investors to write their own story candidly, which is what we all seem to be doing nowadays, and choose how they want to spend their time. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really was looking forward to this, this episode. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks. It was such a warm introduction. I really appreciate that. Well, we don't have Tony Award winners on the show every day, so <laughs> this, is, this is a treat for me, too. Um, you know, Matt, there's so many folks out there today are, are syndicators, right? And yeah. so many folks are, are in, the, in the business now that, that weren't in the business 10 years ago, never mind 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time doing homework uh, on, on the, the guests on the show and, and different syndicators. I have to say, I was pretty darn impressed with your resume. Um, uh, and I thought that it was really neat that you, you've made such a transition. So before we dive into the vast experience and, and the deals that you're involved in, I think it's up to 8,000 units now that, that you've participated in. Um, yeah. can, can we talk about the journey from actor to producer to corporate America? Uh, I mean, you, you've got quite a resume uh, and you've done quite a bit. Yeah, well, I started off growing up in Orlando, Florida. And I moved to New York City uh, to pursue a career in theater. I went to uh, the American Musical and Dramatic Academy on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, graduated from there. And three days after graduation, I was off on tour doing a bus and truck tour around the country. Actually, I know that you're based in Staten Island. I think we did a, we actually did one of our shows in Staten Island. I think one of our first performances as we were going, leaving New York, uh, going around the, sit, the the country doing shows. And so I, I did that professionally for five years. I was in 15 different professional productions all across the United States. And I started tinkering around with computers as a hobby. And this was, uh, you know, mid to late 90s, 1996, 97, when the dot-com craze was was all the rage. Um, And you'll remember here in the city, it was just, everything was was booming. And um, I started, I had taught myself HTML. And I ended up having an opportunity to, to, to do so much work. I, I was, instead of waiting tables in between jobs, I used to work at the Hard Rock Cafe back when it used to be up on 57th Street, waiting tables in between acting gigs. Um, I was able to actually work in a, in a nice little office um, and, and do HTML and, and made good money and wasn't working in a smoky, this was back when you could smoke in the restaurants, uh, working in a, in, a, in a smoky restaurant until all hours of the night. Um, I ended up, getting so much work. I was working from home, working two shifts, if you will. Uh, Work kept coming in. So I got a second desk that I put in my apartment in New York and would have someone come in and and help me with all the work. And then more kept coming in and there was just no more room in my little apartment for another desk. So I got an office space 
in, in, in New York, down in, in the Chelsea area of Manhattan, and uh, created a uh, an, an office. And I had my own boutique agency for a number of years. And then 2001 comes along, and the dot com bubble burst. Uh, all of my clients were, were either going out of business or the larger corporations that I had just were not spending any money on digital efforts. And my business was imploding. I mean, it was bad. And it just so happened at that time that my landlord calls me and says, hey, uh, you've got 90 days to get out of the apartment you're living in. So here I was <laughs> needing to find a new place to live, not having any job to speak of really, having my own business that had terrible, finance, you know, the financial records were terrible. And uh, I ended up getting a job at one of my clients. Uh, Showtime, the cable television channel, was a client of mine. They offered me a position in-house. I went in-house there and was looking for a place to live. I wanted to rent an apartment on the Upper West Side, which is you know, where I had gone to, the, uh, to AMDA and it's a place that I absolutely loved. And uh, I, I was looking, couldn't really find anything that I found affordable. And at that same time, my sister was living up in Washington Heights, which I'm sure you know is about 30 minutes further north. And uh, she saw an ad on a bulletin board for a co-op apartment to buy. And so I ran the numbers and it made sense. My monthly payments would be a little bit less and I'd be gaining equity in, in something. So which I had always heard was a good thing. So I made my first purchase. Uh, I purchased a, a co-op apartment up in Washington Heights. And a little over two years later, I sold that property and saw my initial investment more than quadruple. Wow. And yeah, that's exactly the words that came out of my mouth. I said, wow. And, and then the second thing I said was, how can I do that again? Because <laughs> I was like, there's something to this real estate thing. And that's when I really wanted to get involved in real estate. I took the, the profits from the first property and then bought something on that Upper West Side where I wanted to live and was on the hunt to find an investment property. And the first investment property that I bought was actually a piece of land up in Northwest Connecticut. Um, it was really initially to sort of be a second home for me, you know, someplace outside of Manhattan that I could actually have, you know, more than, I think I was in a 600 square foot, uh, you know, one bedroom apartment. So I have a little bit of space. Um, and what I did was I bought raw land and then eventually developed a house there. And uh, it actually became a vacation rental. And so uh, I, I would rent that out. I, I learned a ton. I mean, first off, I learned what real estate is really made of from the ground up because we literally, I mean, it was a, it was a lot. It was a one acre lot that I bought and we knocked down the trees, dug a hole, poured a foundation, the whole nine yards. And so I really learned from the ground up what, what it takes to make real estate and then dealing with tenants, dealing with leases, and then the really fun stuff, all the accounting, right? And learned about depreciation and all those kinds of things. And that what was initially going to be a, a second home for me, a vacation home or, or, you know, country house for me, actually is what set me on the path to where I am today, uh, because it, it taught me a lot of the basics. Um, you know, fast forward another 10 years um, of, of doing that, I, I was continuing to work in, in corporate America. Well, I don't know how corporate it was. I was working in advertising agencies, right, in New York City, uh, but climbing the corporate ladder nonetheless. And so I did that. Uh, I met my wife. We got married. We had we had a kid. Um, while she was pregnant, we decided that the 600 square foot one bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side wasn't quite going to cut it. I mean, we could make it work, but thought it might be a little easier with a, with a, with another inhabitant of the house to to get a new place. So we moved to Brooklyn, and um, we ended up through that search process. I found 
uh, that the numbers made a lot more sense if I found a place that was a two family versus a one family and rented out one of the units. And it was a lot easier to manage. I assumed it would be a lot easier to manage than the rental that I had that was two hours away in Connecticut. This way, it was just someone right above or right below me. So we bought a townhouse. And nowadays uh, on the internet, they're calling it a house hack. But I didn't even know that that term existed back then. <laughs> yeah. I just knew, hey, my my tenant's going to be paying me X amount of rent. And that's more than half of what my mortgage payment is. So it looks good to me on paper. And it was great. It was fantastic. Then my wife got approached completely out of the blue with a job opportunity in Miami, Florida. So we moved to Miami. And that's when I moved uh, from doing real estate as a hobby for 10 years into doing real estate full time. And so ever since then, I've been syndicating apartment uh, complexes. It's been a little over six years now, um, you know, buying large apartment complexes, not in New York City, although I wish I could find one where the numbers made sense. But most of the stuff that we're doing is in the South, uh, a lot of properties in, in Kansas City and uh, all over Texas. So um, I have to ask somewhere along the way here, you won a Tony, right? Or did you win two Tony awards? We won two Tony awards and we just won them over the summer. So uh, real quickly from, from my, we were in Miami for two years. Then when we were in Boston for four, she got approached again out of the blue with a job opportunity. And we had started investing in Broadway shows back when we, when we were living in New York, we invested in a number of shows, including Hamilton, which was a big success. And we've also invested in a number of flops as well. Um, but then uh, while we were in Boston, we got involved in a couple of shows in a big way as, as co-producers. So those two shows were Moulin Rouge and David Byrne's American Utopia, both of which are currently running on Broadway. And so they were running on Broadway before the pandemic the pandemic came, um, but then the Tony Awards were, were finally happened uh, this past summer, and we just moved back into the city just prior to that. We moved back in August, uh, and, and I think that the Tonys were in September, and uh, we won two Tony Awards. Uh, um, David Byrne's American Utopia is not a, it's David Byrne, the lead singer from the Talking Heads, like, awesome show. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It closes, I believe, in April, um, and so you want to go see it. It's amazing. And it wasn't eligible for a traditional Tony because it's not a musical, mm -hmm. uh, but it got a special Tony award. Um, and then uh, Moulin Rouge won 10 Tony awards, including best musical. And so we got a Tony for, for that one as well. So this is a really cool, super exciting. I, I had always dreamed of getting a Tony when I was younger because I was in theater. I loved it. Uh, but I always assumed I would get it, you know, for acting, you know, not as a, <laughs> as a producer, but you know what? I'm thrilled. I'm tickled pink to have one for anything. So um, it's, it's fantastic. Well, congrats on the success. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you, you, you referenced the, the co-op and, you know, subsequently house hacking. It's funny that everything has a term now, the Burr strategy and house hacking. And, you know, as you're going through this process, you, you hear the terms and, oh, do you know what this is? And do you know what this is? And you, at first you're like, well, not quite sure I do. And they explain it and you're like, oh, we, we've been doing that for 25 years, right? We didn't have a, yeah. a, a neat term for it, but yeah, we, we know what that is. So- Look, um, I used to do, I used to do websites on the side for people or um, even the house, the, the Connecticut house, it was like a thing I did on the side and everyone's calling it a side hustle now, right? There was, <laughs> there was no term, you just did stuff. You yeah. just did it, right? You went yeah. out and you earned. <laughs> 
So uh, was there any other real estate influences or was it that first co-op where you, you quadrupled the money? Was that the hook for you or were there other influences well, you know, in, in your life? There was other influences, 100%. My father uh, was a real estate uh, agent at one point in his life. Uh, he ended up getting involved in food service, and that's where he spent the majority of his career. But when I was a little, little kid, he used to do real estate. And I actually talk about in my book how when I was, I, I have a memory as a little kid being with him, we went to this house and there was this disgusting algae green pool and he was putting in the chemicals and scrubbing it down to turn it into a, a nice pool. And he told me that we owned the house along with his business partner. And I was like, we, we have a house, we live in a house. Like I was, I was like seven years old at the time. I didn't understand. And he explained to me, well, you know, we own this, this house and we're going to give it to a family and they're going to pay us rent and we pay mortgages and stuff, but we have, we will make some extra money for it. I don't know how long my dad had the property for. Unfortunately, he passed away a little while ago, but um, I think he had it for like about a year. And that was it. And he never, there wasn't, he wasn't like he was a prolific real estate investor, but I do think that that experience a long time ago, just kind of planted a seed in my head that like, Hey, you can buy something and then you can rent it out and make a profit. But he never did any other real estate investments, um, you know, that I know of since, uh, since that time. Remarkable. The things that imprint on us as kids that one way or another play, pretty profound role as, as we, you know, grow up and decide what we want to do with ourselves, right? So you're, you're now full-fledged, full-time, rocking and rolling, 8,000 units as a GP. I thought it would be- um, So let me correct you one, just for one second, because it's, I, I, I understand it might be a little misleading and I just want to be really clear. Sure. So it's a little over 6,000 as a limited partner. Got it. And a little over 2,300 as a general partner. Okay, so, so why don't why don't we take a minute to explain that to the audience? Sure, sure. Right? Yeah, no, I think that's a great I think that's a great thing to do. So you know, I get involved in real estate syndications, and so I found out about syndications when we moved to Miami, um, and it blew my mind because we had the 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 house hack, the townhouse that I had in Brooklyn, and I knew that it was an amazing deal what we got. And I wanted to do more of them. The problem was you can't buy anything in Brooklyn that's less than seven figures. So I would need, you know, two, $300,000 in capital to just even for a down payment. I didn't have that kind of money sure. uh, to just keep doing that, right? I had just done one of them already. And so, so for me, it was like, wow, how do I do this without, you know, finding some really rich benefactor of some sort? Um, and so I kind of just gave up on it. I, 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 my plan before my wife got the job opportunity in Miami was to continue working in corporate America, doing my advertising thing. I was, I was, I had, I was a vice president at an advertising agency. I made a decent amount of money and I'd save money for the next, you know, five, six years, and then have enough for another down payment on another place. That's kind of where my head was at. When we moved down to Miami, I decided to go full-time into real estate. And that's a whole other little story we, we can get into. I talk about it in the book, but I decided to, to, to start doing real estate full-time because that's really where my passion was. And um, that's when I found out about real estate syndication it was within those first six months of, of going into real estate full-time. And I was like, wow, this is amazing because what it is, is a bunch of people can get together together. 
bunch of investors pool their capital together and then get these, these otherwise unobtainable assets. I mean, the first deal that I did as a general partner was a $10 million property. We needed $2.6 million of capital. And there's, I don't have that kind of money sitting in my pocket. I just don't. But what I was able to do was get 40 other people together and we were all interested and people put in 50K, 100K, 250, you know, some of these high rollers could put in even higher numbers, but we all pulled that money together and we also pulled our balance sheets together to qualify for the loan. And so then we were able to all invest in that. And before I did that first deal as a general partner, I was a limited partner. And so the difference is as a limited partner, um, there, when you're doing these syndications, there's someone who is considered the sponsor. They're the person who's putting the deal together. And by the way, it's usually not one person. There's usually a couple of people doing this together. And they will put the deal together. They have relationships with brokers, with property managers. They find a deal. They underwrite a deal. They'll get it under contract. Then they will go to their investor group because they have hopefully amassed a, a, a database of investors so that they can take these deals down and say, hey, investors, here's a, a new opportunity that we have. Uh, we're buying 300 units in Dallas, Texas, and the return is you're going to double your money in five years. And during the whole period, during those five years, you'll get 10% each year of your initial capital in, in cash distributions. And it's a very tax advantaged. We're going to do you know, de bonus depreciation, you know, whatever. They, they, they tell you the whole thing. And then the investors put their money in, but as an investor, uh, you're a limited partner. And so I did the first five deals that I was involved in um, when it comes to these multifamily syndications, I was a limited partner in. So I was taking my money, trusting in the person um, and, and, and trusting <laughs> their, their underwriting. And I've learned quite a few things <laughs> um, about how to look at those, which is why I wrote this, the book, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, but the book is, is to really help people who want to passively invest kind of know the ins and outs. And um, so I went ahead and, and put the money in these deals. And then that's it. As a limited partner, you, you're done. Um, the general partners who are the sponsors, they will go ahead and they will run the deal. They make the decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Hopefully the deal does well. Uh, they send you uh, money. And then at the end, they sell it and you get a nice big fat check, right? If, if all goes as planned. Um, what I wanted to do based on my real estate experience and based on um, my, my project management experience for, for the 18 years that I was in corporate America in advertising, I was a project manager. I'm a PMI certified project management professional. So I'm, I'm really good at managing people and budgets and timelines. And so I'm doing the same thing that I did there, but just applying that to real estate, which had been a hobby of mine for 10 years. And so I always wanted to be a sponsor. So as, as a sponsor on the deal, I'm doing all the work. I'm, I'm, I'm finding the deals. I'm getting them under contract. Uh, putting putting non-refundable money down in a lot of cases, going to my investors saying, hey, here's the opportunity, getting that all together, uh, closing on the deal, and then managing the deal. You know, we have uh, third-party property management that we use, local property management in the areas where we're investing. Um, it seems like to, at least at this point, stage in the game, make a lot more sense than vertically uh, integrating. I'd rather be with someone who's got 30, 40, 50,000 doors under management because they have a lot more pull with different vendors because they 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 
give a lot of work to these vendors and they can make some magic happen. Um, so we work with third-party property management, um, but on a weekly basis, I'm an asset manager. And so I'm checking in with the property managers and making sure that everything's running smoothly, checking the KPIs, all the stuff that I did as a project manager in the advertising world. Um, and then we communicate that information with the investors on a monthly basis, actually, send out distributions usually on a quarterly basis. And then, you know, our, our plans to hold the properties about five years and double people's money in that time. Uh, real estate market has been really good to us lately. I mean, I, I pick good properties. I manage them well, but I, I, I cannot uh, take credit for the fact that that real estate's been on a tear for the past eight to 10 years. Um, so we've been exiting our properties in about two to three years instead of holding them for five. But I always tell the investors, hey, look, we're, we're looking to hold this for five or six years. I don't know that that this that this great run up in the real estate market is going to continue. Maybe it will. Uh, the underwriting that I'm doing, uh, I'm saying I think real estate market is going to soften up. So if we're buying something at a, let's say a five cap, the way the cap rates work, I know a lot of your audience knows, but some of them might not. Uh, as cap rates go up, it means valuations are going down. Um, our latest deal in Dallas, we're buying at a 3.9 cap. And that's, you know, things are going around a four cap in Dallas right now. Um, and uh, we're projecting that we're going to sell that in five years at a 5.4 cap. Because we know historically, when we look at those cap rates in that market, they're somewhere between five and a quarter to five and a half. So we felt 5.4 is a very conservative approach to uh, what a sales cap rate might look like uh, five years from now. And are there liquidation events along the way? That's the only liquidation event. Uh, we, we will have cash distributions because the all the properties that we buy are, um, well, the 99% the of the properties that we're, we're going to buy are stabilized assets, right? So they're 90% okay. occupied or more for 90 days or more. So they're cash flowing from day one. Um, we're doing a value add. So we're adding things. We're, we're fixing up deferred, you know, curing deferred maintenance, improving curb appeal, renovating unit interiors. A lot of times we're buying like 80s product. And look, I grew up in the, in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, I love the 80s, but I don't want my apartment to look like the 80s. So I go ahead and, and, and we, we upgrade them and we're, we're buying properties where the rents are way below market. So we can raise the rents up to just the mid-level of the market and, and really force some nice appreciation on the, on the asset and have some good cash flow coming right off the bat. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear uh, the liquidation event is limited to, to the sale. Um, folks, there's, you've heard me talk about this more and more, and I'm going to continue to raise the temperature on this. Uh, you know, there, there's a saying, uh, I've never seen a pro forma that didn't work, right? Uh, on paper, <laughs> these things all look amazing, but we're seeing more and more, Matt, really disconcerting offerings where they're predicated on so many things happening that, um, you know, those of us who've been around the business long enough have seen what a bad market looks like. And we understand what can happen when capital dries up, right? And yeah. there's not always going to be uh, a line of bridge or, you know, what I call mid-cap lenders uh, ready to knock the debt out. Uh, and we're just finding that uh, it, people have to be really cautious and, and look for, for folks that have done their homework and are not depending on, we recently looked at one that had, two liquidation events over the next seven years, plus a sale in the seventh year, banking on 30% rent appreciation, 
year over year for the first oh. two, yeah two years and then it was uh two refinances along the way those were the liquidation events obviously yep. but they were uh, not accounting for increase in expenses even though inflation's already at 7% mm. and you know there's a lot of fancy terms out there folks you know a loss to lease which is a very important thing and a very key metric to look at uh, but yet you still have to stick to sound fundamentals, in my opinion, my humble opinion in real estate, uh, this thing is is a, a cycle. It goes up and it goes down. And we're seeing a lot of signs that are pointing toward uh, we're getting more bullish. We want to buy more real estate now, believe it or not, but it's got to be the right deal, right? There has to be enough of a, a conservative approach. We're not seeing many that are, are talking about buying at 3.9s and selling at 5.4s. Right, that's great. That's a really conservative, smart, safe approach. Uh, we're we're seeing buying at three point nine, rent going up seventy some odd percent over the next five or six years. It, expenses not going up commensurate to that. Liquidation events and selling at three point fives. Right, uh, and that that's scary. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I think that there's well, that's why I wrote the book. You know, to be honest with you, one of the things I talk about in the book is refinances and how I never invest in a deal that's got a refinance underwritten in the pro forma in year three. I see all these deals nowadays. We're going to refinance in year three. How do you know? <laughs> Listen to what Matt is saying, folks. <laughs> What's the interest rate going to be three years from now? What are the cap rates going to be three years from now? I have no idea. Now I'll tell you, I invested in a deal. I am tickled pink. Okay. Let me tell you, I've invested in 25 deals as a limited partner. I have one deal that right now is going to do a refinance in year three. It happens to be in Arizona. This deal's knocked it out of the park. They're when I invested in it, it was a five-year hold. It was not going to... Now, it just so happens the market's been great. It's been very kind to them. The property's been doing fantastic. We're going to do a cash-out refinance and have a nice profit and still own the property, which is is wonderful. I'm going to have no cash in the deal left and I'll get still get probably like 5% cash on cash. They'll hold on to it for another four or five years and then sell, right? It's awesome, right? But th those things you can't, I, I, I will not, and I don't advise that anyone invest in a deal that is predicated on that refinance. And then if you take the refinance out of the underwriting, the deal falls apart. Deal, deal blows up. So yeah. um, the, the, the danger point that we continue to caution the listeners on is when the debt is structured on a deal today, these two to three year deals, exactly what Matt's talking about. We've seen markets where I don't care what the value is. I don't care what the cash flow is. There is not institutional debt available. And that's by design, by the way, folks. These things line up purposefully. Um, and when you're, you're at the end of that two to three year mark, one of the syndicators I was challenging recently said, well, what, what, what's the, the big deal? So if it doesn't cash flow the way we think it's going to cash flow, you're not going to lose the asset. And I said, with all due respect, if you have a two to three year interest only mortgage that you're securing today, and you don't have the ability to convert to a permanent, right? All my deals now I'm looking for the ability to convert. I'll pay for it today so I could sleep tomorrow. When that note comes due and the big guys have put their hands in their pockets and they're watching the small to mid cap banks panic because deposits are lowering, which means they're falling out of compliance, which means they've got to get the debt off their books. They don't care if it's cash flowing. They cannot refinance you by charter. 
And if the big institutional debt providers are not going to provide that, that safety net for you, where are you going in two to three years? And that does lead to not just an asset not cash flowing, that leads to you lose the deal, you lose your property. So there's, uh, again, to be clear, folks, we're more bullish now maybe than ever. Uh, we're taking advantage of the low rates because we don't think that they're going to be here to last. We're doing deals, but we're doing smart deals like Matt's talking about. Be really careful. And it doesn't mean if you come across a pro forma that has a refinance or a liquidation event that, that it's a bad deal or a bad actor. It just means pay close attention. And that's why I wanted to talk a bit about the book because the book is uh, a bit of a how-to guide. Uh, for folks that are entering the market. So can you spend a couple of minutes on the book, Matt, and explain to the audience the value? Sure. So uh, I think I mentioned in my story that I, that I lived in Boston for four years, just back in the city. So happy to be back in New York, by the way. Loved Boston. Don't get me wrong. Boston was awesome, but, but glad to be back in New York, which feels, which is home, right? So uh, when I was in Boston, I ran a meetup group there and you know, it started off really small and was growing and growing and growing. And one of the things that I was trying to do is tell people about my story and how I learned and get different, I get different experts come in and talk about different things and, and get people to know that this thing called syndication exists and you can invest out of state and do really well. Because a lot of the people who would come, you know, it was a multifamily uh, meetup that we had started, but a lot of them had like a, you know, a triple decker in Worcester. They didn't, they weren't um, buying these large apartment complexes. So people started to open up their minds as they got exposed to these things and would be interested in maybe investing in their first syndicated deal and would come to me and say, hey, Matt, like I know two thirds of your portfolio are limited partner, one third of your general partner, you know how to run these deals, you, you run the meetup group, like, would you look at this deal and tell me if it's any good? And so I would be happy to sit down with, with people and take a look at the underwriting, with the, take a look at the investor deck with them. And I never tell people whether they should do a deal or not. That's for them to make the decision. But I would point out things like, oh, well, they've got 30% rent growth every year for the next 10 years. Like that seems like it might be very aggressive. You should ask the sponsor why and find out how they're justifying that. So I was happy to do these things. I love it. I love talking shop. I mean, I'm having a ball right now just talking to you about real estate stuff. It's my favorite thing to talk about, but I was running out of time. I just didn't have all the time in the day. More and more people kept asking me to do this. So I wrote it down in what was like a handbook that I had created. And it was 60 pages of the most boring, driest thing you've ever read in your entire life. You would love it and I would love it, but most people, it's like chewing cardboard, right? It just was all technical, jargony, you know, and I, I took a look at the book and I was like, this is, this is, this is no good. I got to make this palatable. I've got to make this something that people can read and understand. And what I did was I took all the information that was in there and I pulled it out and, and put it across my narrative. So I tell my whole journey, my story, and I teach or share, I should say, I share with everybody the keystone concepts that I learned along the way. So I have 18 different keystone concepts that I learned. And that the story about my dad in the pool is in there and all, all the different stories that we've talked about to, on this podcast and more in that book and teach these concepts. And then there's 60 different real estate definitions throughout the book. There's all these different terms. They're defined within the book. And then there's a glossary at the end, which serves as an index. So you can go back and read the story around it. And so that's basically what the book is. I mean, it, it starts off with, me buying that first apartment up in Washington Heights and defining, you know, that's when I learned what the difference was between an asset and a liability. 
And then at the end of the book, I'm doing an air rights deal and a 1031 exchange. So it gets a, a lot more complex and sort of everything in between. Um, and it talks about the, the shows and, and me meeting my wife and having the kid. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a memoir. It is a life story. It's got a lot of fun stories and cool stuff in there. It's very entertaining. I tried to put a lot of humor in there because real estate can be a dry subject, right? I didn't want this to be like another textbook that someone's got to read. So I have a lot of friends who've read it and I'm like, hey, I, you know, just as a book, it was like kind of a cool book. I mean, I learned a lot, but like I enjoyed reading your story. So um, that's what that's what the book's for, for people who are interested in, in investing in real estate and investing in syndications. It, it gives you, I think, a really good primer on what syndications are. Um, the different types of investors like sophisticated versus accredited and then 506B versus a 506C, which are different types of uh, ways that you can set up the syndications. It gets into some of the weeds and the technical stuff that people need to, to, to know, but in, a, in an easy to read fashion. Yeah. And, and for, for those of us that are looking to participate as LPs, the, it, it's, that's the foundation, folks. We, we still should have some base level uh, to advanced level, really, depending on the appetite of what product you're getting into. So you can understand these, these pro formers, you know, again, remember the, the pro formers are built that way for a reason. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're made to look a certain way because that's what, what the requirements are to get the deals to underwriting. So uh, I, I, I'm, we're, we're actually, we have a book club here, Matt. So we had talked about it. We're going to be adding this to our, roster uh, we have one more ahead oh. of us but then we're going to be doing the book and book club so I'll oh that's so back cool yeah thank well, you i appreciate that well we appreciate the the, the like you said there there's uh, there's books that are are kind of heavy and and just laden with systems and we, we tend to opt for uh after we do a heavy book like that we try to mix in ones that have a story um and we're doing more and more investing as i had shared before we started recording and we're trying to inspire our team to do more and more investing so we thought it would be um, a fun way to uh start that process in a formal way and, and educate the the entire team here on what we do you know on the other side of the table so uh, we appreciate um having the opportunity to read the book and again congrats on it being a bestseller um, thank you i want to talk a bit about uh, where you are investing, uh, what markets are you in and how are you selecting those markets? So we're, we're selecting markets in the South, the Midwest. Um, so as a, uh, sponsor, so it's a little bit different, um, with the, the sponsor versus a limited partner. One of the things I like about being a limited partner is that it allows me to invest in areas that I don't know very well, where there's another person who I've gotten to know and vetted. And you know that, that's the thing in the, in the book, the back section of the book tells you how to vet the sponsor, the market, the deal. And I have the four fudgeable factors, which are the numbers that people can change on the underwriting to make it look better than it really is. But um, I... I, I like being able to invest in a diversity of operators in many locations. Um, they tend to be in the center of the country and not on the coasts. Although I have invested, I have some stuff in Florida. I have invested in, in Atlanta, um, but tends to be in the middle of the country. Um, and I do believe, and this is maybe counter to what a lot of people think, um, I think you can invest in almost any place in the United States. 
um, when you're looking at a larger MSA, um, because it really is, you know, there's the old joke, right? What are the three most important things in real estate? Location, 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 right? And it really is about the location. When we do our deals and we're presenting a, a deck to investors, we talk about the larger MSA. Then we talk about the sub-market in which the property is located. And then we go five, three, and one mile on that property. And I, I think that there are a lot of places almost in almost every large MSA in America where you can find specific areas that are fantastic places to invest. And maybe some of that comes from living in New York City, right? Where everything's block by block. I live, I'm telling you, I live in a place right now. They are, I don't know if you can hear any of the construction. They're finishing up construction right now adjacent to my building, a beautiful, huge, luxury, high-rise, $5 million apartment. I mean, big, big place, $5 million for a unit. Literally at the end of the block, at the other end of the block, there are housing projects, mm -hmm. right? And so it's just, and that's the way New York is, right? It's very block by block. And um, so uh, I think the same thing about it anywhere, you know, if, 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 you can find the right pockets to buy. You can do very well. Now, we've been investing in Kansas City. We've been investing in a lot of areas in Texas. And the reason why is we see a lot of employment growth in those locations. Uh, employment brings people, uh, brings demand for housing, right? And so that th those fundamentals are there, but there are bad parts of Kansas City and bad parts of Dallas and, and, and Houston that I would not invest in, right? So it's it, you have to get really, really local. The thing that I like, you know, the, the first place that I ever invested in, first deal that I got um, was phenomenal. And I think the reason why I was able to get it as a newbie just coming in was it was completely off the radar. Uh, it was in a town called Lawrence, Kansas, which by the way, the secret's out. A lot of people have bought things there since. And so I, I don't know if it's so great anymore. I mean, I still like it. It's a great town. It's a college town. It's, it's between Kansas City and Topeka and it's where KU is. So if you're into basketball, which, I will, which I'm not really, but the Jayhawks are, are there. They're usually making it into the Sweet 16 uh, for the March Madness. I did go though to a basketball game there and it was amazing. The crowd was yeah. electric. I mean, it was really cool. But um, that town is a small town. It wasn't really on the radar. I found a place. It was built in the in the early '80s. Had been mismanaged. Uh, the The person who built it sold it to the 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 group that owned it when I bought it. They the group that bought it when I bought it. The group that owned it uh, had it for twelve years and had not spent a dime on the property. Okay, so the sidewalks, at one, uh, it was a portfolio of two properties. The sidewalks at one of the properties was literally reduced down to rubble. There was like no sidewalk. That was the first thing that we did was we poured sidewalks and the residents were thrilled to have someone coming in and fixing up their property. The rents were way below market. We brought them into around the middle of the market, a little lower than the middle of the market. We had a problem with the property. The problem was, we did not meet our year one cash on cash returns that we promised the investors. And the reason why was we assumed a certain amount of attrition that you would have where people would leave and we would then renovate the unit. Nobody wanted to leave because we were fixing it up. So, yep. you know, we gave investors, I, 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 
I think legally I'm not supposed to discuss all the, 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 the exact numbers. We, we still get, we gave very nice cash distributions, just not quite as high as we wanted. By the way, we sold the property a little over two years later and blew our projections out the water. So it was all good in the end. But at the beginning, it was a little bit of a slower start because everyone wanted to stay there. Um, but, but, you know, these properties, a lot of them are neglected and, and we can go in. And, and so this, this was a market that did not have huge employment growth, did not have huge population growth, was not on the radar. I mean, they had like 1% population growth every year for like the past hundred years. And the projections were like 1% population growth for the next hundred years, right? Every year. And so not something that comes up on people's radars is, wow, this is a hot area that I got to go in. But that didn't matter. It was a nice, stable place. We found a good property with great property management. And we there was a value-add opportunity. We could go in there and fix up the property and make it look decent and bring rents up to the, the, the norm of the market. And we did exceptionally well. So as... Um... As an investor who's who's done this for a long time, uh, those are the the issues you want to hear about, right? If you didn't hit your marks because you were embraced, you know what you have, right? When you see crumbling sidewalks, you go, "Oh, I think there may be an opportunity here." And having been through these things, uh, I fully understand what you're what you're talking about. And I agree that there's value in places that not everyone is looking right now. Um, uh, as as the GP or as the sponsor, how many markets are, are you focused on? We're primarily focused on two markets right now. Okay. Um, we're, we're primarily looking in Kansas City and Dallas. And part of that has to do with the relationships. You know, once you get into a market and you've done deals in the market and the players in the market know you, um, it gives you an advantage, a competitive advantage. The last deal that we took down and down, well, we're about to take it down, fully funded, ready to go. We're closing in a couple of weeks. That deal, we were not the highest bidder. We just weren't. But the seller knew us. We've known the sellers for years. They know that we're good people, that we're ethical people. We, we're not going to retrade on them or do something crazy at the end. Uh, and that will close. And so for them, it was worth to get a few hundred thousand dollars less on the deal for that assurity of close, know that they're working with good people. And um, so, so that's an advantage. Sometimes we get an advantage where, look, I, I have a, a property right now in Kansas City that I'm selling. Um, the broker just sent me over financials on a new property. Now he's going to be bringing that to market. Um, he's got his team working on a marketing package, but I'm taking a look at it a few weeks ahead of time. The last deal that we did at the end of last year, same sort of situation, different broker, uh, where a broker shot us uh, some financials on something ahead of time um, while his team was working on the marketing deck. We put together, we ran the numbers, we put together an offer, and we were able to present an offer to the seller the day that the marketing package hit the markets. And, you know, the marketing process goes on 30 to 60 days, depending on exactly what's going on. We gave them an offer, but we were like, hey, you know, here, here's our offer. It's good for 72 hours, because if, if you're not going to take this, this is really the most that we can pay. It's not going to make sense for us to pay more. So we're just going to move on, you know, mm -hmm. to another deal. And so it was, it, that was the, it was right around the number that they wanted. So then they just took it and we signed an agreement and took the, 
got the property. And, and so having those relationships is really key. And so we have those relationships in those markets. And so we're able to get some more traction in those markets, but there's other markets that we like that we look at, but those are the ones where we've made the most headway. And any, any particular, uh, are you, are you focused really on just multifamily? Are you contemplating or are you involved in any other type of, of deals, commercial or mixed use or self-storage or whatever it may be? You know, I don't know about um, self-storage or, um, you know, like industrial or office space. Uh, you know, if um, there was a trusted partner who wanted me to come on board because they feel that I can add some value to their deal um, and they had some experience in that arena, uh, something I would would definitely entertain, but it's not really my focus. Uh, what I would like to do is get involved in a new construction deal with someone who mm -hmm. has some experience with that new construction, multifamily. I've, that's something that has been on my radar, maybe because I built that house a long time ago up in Connecticut. And I'm like, okay, well, it's just a few more units. Right. But um, I've gotten involved um, in some new construction projects as a limited partner. So I've learned a lot. We've been buying some land and um, doing entitlements and things like that, and then start going vertical. So I've learned a lot about it and, and put some money into it and have made some money from it too, which has been nice. And I'm looking for um, possibly an opportunity to, to partner with uh, an experienced a uh, partner who's done that before and, and, and maybe get involved in the ground up. The, the ground up developments I've been involved in have been multifamily with commercial space on the first floor. And so that's something that I'm interested in doing. Um, you know, if you can get some nice retail uh, or restaurant or, or whatever on the first floor and then do residential above. Um, I like that. I like that idea. And so that's something that we may, we, uh, we may do in the future. And you, you can, you can smash if you hit hit the ground up stuff right, you could really, really do well um, on those deals. So uh, good luck with them. Um, you know, we're, we're finding it, it's becoming more and more difficult to invest in our own backyard, which is has been been tough. But uh, for for us, um, the uh, candidly, the, the political climate is, is something that we're taking a hard look at now. Uh, in, in every SWOT analysis, we, we have no choice but to take a look at, at uh, tenancy laws and, and, and what's happening on the ground. Are you guys looking into that? And are you finding that you as know, well? It is something that we do think about. And it, you'll notice that the, the places that I mentioned tend to be sort of a little more of of red states, right? The, the, regardless of what your own personal views might be, right? Whether you're conservative or liberal, the, the, the bottom line is uh, if you have a problem with a tenant and it takes two years to, to evict them, you know, that's not, that's, it's, it's difficult, but I, I just want to be really clear about this though. I, you know, if you go to my website, you'll see one of my main initiatives is about reinventing property ownership as a positive for communities. And every deal that I do has to be a win-win. And so that's a win for the residents of the community. It's a win for the staff and then a win for us as investors. I am not, this is not a charity. We are in this to make money, but I think that you can do well by doing good and you can be an ethical business person and still make a, a, a very nice living. And so we work very, very hard to keep people in, in units. Number one, it's the right thing to do. You don't yeah. want to kick anybody out. 
Number two, it also is good for the bottom line. I mean, the, the largest cost that you're going to have on these things besides property tax is, is the turnover costs, right? It's a very big cost. So it does, it does affect the bottom line. And so we have been able to pre-COVID and especially during COVID work with our tenants when they do have financial problems, get them assistance if needed. You know, one of the greatest things about uh, you know, we were we we have a lot of properties in Texas, and so in Texas, we we if we need to, we can evict people relatively quickly and 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 gain possession of the property if we need to. Uh, but they had amazing Texas rent relief program where we were able to get for almost every single tenant get their rent paid during the whole COVID crisis, right? So it's 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 been good. But if you are in a place. That makes it really difficult to evict people. And, you know, look, rent control, they, they tried rent control in Boston for a number of years and they abandoned it because it actually made the, the, the home situation worse yeah. for lower income. It does not help. What happens is the landlords stop taking care of the properties. Yes. It's not the way to solve it. You could solve it through subsidies, through tax credits. There's a lot of other incentives and, and ways that the government can help incentivize property owners to uh, to have affordable housing. And, 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 and when I was in Boston, I was, uh, an, I guess I, I'm technically still uh, an ambassador for a company called Caritas. It's a nonprofit that's all about creating permanent housing for homeless people dealing with vets and battered women and, and people who had substance abuse issues. And it's, it's a, a cause that's near and dear to my heart. And there are ways that we can do that and move society forward without regulation that actually hinders that. And I feel like a lot of times people who are making the laws don't understand exactly how the business works. And therefore, while they're trying to do a good thing and I commend them for that, Unfortunately, it's not going to get the results that they want. Yeah, and unfortunately, much of the legislation is well intended, but uh, it doesn't translate. And and what happens is uh, we've seen that firsthand. I mean, we used to have a very robust rental division here, and we did it right. You know, we 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 we've always always handled things with the absolute utmost level of ethics, and. The industry took took its hits, and, and in many cases, well deserved hits. Um, but a caricature kind of was built of of the big bad landlord and the big bad real estate, uh, you know, agent or broker, uh, and a lot of the good folks that were in those markets just just up and walked out. And we we saw as the the litigation got so 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 pervasive, we said the, just the economics don't work here anymore. And as we stepped away we saw the folks swoop in that were the last people that you wanted handling those types of things. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you, you, you're going beyond the numbers uh, because it's, it's so important and the community will pay you back if it hasn't already tenfold when, when you, when you work that way and you build a reputation as you're building now um, it always comes back around and uh, it, it does, you have to be an, an active member and a, a good steward of the community. I'm a huge believer in that. So I'm really happy to, to hear that, that that's part of the passion for you because there's not enough of us that are talking about that, Matt. There's, there's not enough of us out there that are, are talking about the things that we're doing. And it does have that caricature of, of the evil landlord. And that's not yeah. who all of us are. Right. 
100 percent so um before i let you go and and folks uh, i i we're gonna of course as always have all the links down below uh but check matt's blog out uh he's got a great blog informative direct um, if, if there's questions about terms, it's, it's the place to go because he does slow it down and, and walk you through a, a really nice job on the blog. Um, what, are you, what are you seeing in the next couple of years, Matt, uh, in the markets? Are, are, we're we're going to soften up here a bit? I, I don't know. I really don't know. My crystal ball is hazy. And so uh, what I've always done and what I continue to do, it, it's funny because you, you, you sort of took you were saying something, you just, it's, it, we, we have a very, very similar mindset. So the, the keystone concepts in the book, keystone concept number five is cash flow is king. And I talk about, like you said, markets go up and markets go down, right? And so as long as you have cash flow, you're good to go. And so that's really the, the main investment thesis that I, that I base everything on is just having that cash flow. I mean, yeah, we want to have that liquidity event at the end, but what if we can't sell five years from now? Can we hold on to the property longer? As long as we've got that cash flow, we can make the debt service. That's the most important thing. So, I mean, I don't know. It, it, interest rates are going up now. I think they probably will continue to go up. I think we're probably going to have inflation. I mean, the, we've been printing money for 10 years. Like it's going it, it, to, chickens are going to come home to roost at some point, but I also thought this was going to happen seven years ago. Hmm. So I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, so I just, I don't know how long this is going to go on for, I mean, we do seem to be seeing some inflation now, but you know, maybe the fed raises rates for, you know, a little bit and then all of a sudden everything's fixed and then they start bringing them back down. Who knows? I don't know. And so what I, what I do know is that I don't know. So if I feel like if I'm investing in a cash flowing business, which the businesses I choose to invest in are apartment buildings and that's producing profits, then I'm in good shape. And so that, that, that's the way that I approach it. And then I do the underwriting, you know, really conservatively saying, okay, we're going to say things are softened up. We're going to say rent growth slows down. We're going to say vacancy goes up, you know, all those kinds of things just to be conservative. You know, lately I've been wrong. Lately I've been very wrong. And that's why we've been able to exit our deals in two years because we hit our numbers and we're like, okay, this is great. Let's, let's take this money off the table and move into another one. But, um, but I don't, I don't anticipate that that's going to continue. So folks, bears, bulls, and pigs, and all pigs get slaughtered. I love the strategy. Um, <laughs> is, there, is there room in the deals that you're structuring for like exchange money and OZ money? So uh, we don't do, we have not at this point done any opportunity zone things. So, so no, it wouldn't be a, a, a type of thing if you're looking to take advantage of that. Um, exchanges are hard to do with the syndications. They're possible. You have to set everything up as a tenant in common. So it would be a tick. And one tenant in common being the, the, the entity that's doing the 1031. And then the other entity would be the syndication. Um, I've always had concerns around conflicts of interest on doing something like that. I I, if I was going to end up doing it, I would need to talk with people who've done it before, because I've always wondered, well, what if the syndication meets its goals, but the entity that's got the 1031 and doesn't want to sell for one reason or another. Yeah. How do you resolve that? Because you don't want there to be any bad feelings. So I'd have to work through that. There'd have to be some sort of agreement on that. Um, also, because of the legal hoops, there's additional legal hoops that have to be gone through. 
from my from what I've heard anecdotally, it really doesn't make sense to do 1031 into one of these syndications unless the 1031 is going to be a minimum of a million dollars. So I've just never had anyone exchanging, you know, a million or more who's been that, you know, who's been interested in one of my deals. Um, uh, but it could happen. I, if someone came to me and was like, Hey, I got 2 million. I need to exchange, you know, I would entertain the conversation and try to make it work out. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I only brought it up because there's uh, with the market being hot, uh, it's becoming more and more challenging to source deals, right? So we have uh, investors all the time. I'm in one personally now. It's a small exchange, but nevertheless, it, it's you know it's not small for us. We have six hundred thousand. We need to shelter, and it's hard to find the place. You know. So the chapters ten and eleven in the book talk about the air rights deal and the ten thirty one exchange. Is all one big as this most creative deal I ever did. I sold the air rights above the building to the new construction that's going on next door and 1031 that money. And I wanted to put it into a syndication. It was only a half a million bucks and there was nowhere to put it. So I ended up buying a six unit property in Kansas city and we're doing phenomenally well on it, but it um, yeah, it can be hard. (laughs) If you got capital, you need a place. Yeah. It can be hard. uh, How do folks find you, Matt? Uh, go to the website, pacheni.com. I'm sure you'll put a link in the show notes, but I'll spell it real quick. It's P like and Peter, I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. You can find a link to learn more about the book there. You can read the blog. Like you said, I've got a, a newsletter that I send out every month that's got information and investment tips and tricks and things like that. So that's all right there on pacheni.com. I uh, really appreciate it. Matt Pacheni, everyone. Yeah, definitely check it out. Uh, he, he's He's got some great material on the site. All the best, Matt. Uh, congratulations on the success and, and best of luck moving forward. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. It was, a, it was really fun talking with you today. Yeah, it was, it, it was a blast. I appreciate you, you coming on. It's always great to connect with like-minded folks. So appreciate the chat. Awesome. Thanks. Take care, everyone. As always, please stay safe. Mm-hmm.